everyone. It's Daniel Elwood and Robert Paul Johnson. We are the Last Nighters. You can find us at lastnighters.com. And this is episode 195 of the show. And you can find the show notes more at lastnighters.com slash 195. We do a little bit of pre-show and post-show bonus content that you can get via our Patreon. And that is found at lastnighters.com slash Patreon. Tonight, we're going to be talking about Red Obsession, which is a, uh, bio- a biopic film. I think that's what, Robert, you were calling it in the in the some of the pre-show stuff there. It's a bit of a documentary bit of a talking head thing. It uh, has Russell Crowe doing some narration and uh, should be a, a very interesting and fun discussion with our guest who has been on with us a number of times. And for, for whatever reason, if it's got red in the title or, or something along those lines, he wants to do a movie about it. We had him on for Reds, uh, starring his namesake or with Warren Beatty as his namesake, John Reed. He is Jonathan Reed and he has a new project uh, called Wine with Barbecue. And we will get him... Uh, on screen, main screen now, John Reed, welcome back to the show. That's a very fine wine you've got. It looks like a uh, 82, um, what's what's Lafitte. Lafitte, an 82 Lafitte, nothing less, nothing yeah, less. It's only, it's it's only four like grand a bottle. bottle. Pick it up. It's a $12 bottle, $12 bottle Chateau Saint-Jean from California, so... All right, so it's not a Bordeaux because that is based on a very specific... Piece of land in France bestowed with uh, Napoleonic honor, mm-hmm. right? And so there's a bit of a history to that, and, and the the this movie gets into that, which I thought was kind of cool. And we see the name Rothschild in here, so that might be a talking point, perhaps. Um, but why don't you uh, remind people or introduce to people what is the new project? And I have a little uh, crawler that I can play along the bottom that they can see while you talk about it. Yeah, so um, I during the pandemic, the um, I got a lot of free time. I mean, I was still working, but I got a lot of free time. I, I was I was really interested in smoking uh, barbecue, smoking meat. Um, I had a smoker; it was a propane, but it kind of quit on me. So I got um, a, a charcoal smoker, and that kind of changed my whole perspective on smoking meat and the art of barbecue. Um, and I was just, I just started barbecuing every weekend, every chance I could, if I, if it was raining that weekend, I go, I was really, I was had a visceral reaction that I, you know, I was really disappointed. Um, and then my soon to be wife, uh, said to me, you should just do a blog because you love wine, you love barbecue, you love pairing wine with barbecue. So why not do something like that? So now I had the brilliant idea of, uh, starting a blog called Wine with Barbecue, where I uh, showcase a, a certain barbecue dish that I cook every every so often, or every I try to do it every week. Um, it's been a little busy with the with the wedding planning this, this lately, but um, I I try to do at least one a week. Um, so it's it's just me cooking my whatever protein I'm doing, and then. Uh, picking a good wine that I think will go with it. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but that's all part of the the journey of both barbecue and wine education that I'm I'm probably going through. All right, very good. And that can be found at winewithbarbecue.com. We've got that uh, as a little crawler down along the bottom here. And I understand that you also went on a uh, smoking excursion, a bit of a, a Al-Qaeda training camp, boot camp, yep. for learning how to do the smoking with a pretty famous guy. Uh, do you also consider yourself a bit of a wine aficionado, sort of like how you're a film aficionado? Well, I've been I've been into wine seriously for about I'd say 14 years. So I, I luckily I have a, a resource very close to me 
this woman who I've gotten friendly with owns a wine shop uh, a little far from where I am, but we, we love those shops so much that we go there and we go there with, with, um, for the, the classes that she offers. And we've just learned a lot about wine, uh, just going, uh, uh, up several times a year to her classes. And it's, it's been a really fun experience. She's really passionate about it. You could tell, like, if I could trade places with her, I would in a second because she's really doing what she's, what she loves, what she's passionate about. Uh, so it, it really, through osmosis, that passion really gets to the, she's got just a very loyal following and everybody who, who just gets an education just by being around her. All right. Yeah, that sounds really cool. Now, um, I, I happen to have a fine wine with me here, so I want to get your professional opinion on this. Um, this is uh, not an 82 Lafitte or even a 2009, 2010 that oh, went right. on the really high, uh, yeah, as the movie goes into, like uh, almost a, a tulip bubble mania. But um, you simply pop out this little disc here, and then this nipple comes out, and then you can pour it straight nipple. in. <laughs> to a glass and it's ready, ready to go. I, I gotta, I gotta fish it out of here. But uh, I figured since we're talking about high quality wines, um, why not bust out this new guy with the nipple and it's even got a little safety seal on it. And uh, there we go. So we're just gonna, video. we're gonna try it out. And look at that. Can you hear that? That's a sign of a quality wine. That it, sounds, it just it sounds high quality. It just oozes right out like like a, a like a donkey piss <laughs> at a belt at a ball game, you know, where you're holding it till the seventh inning and then you run to the bathrooms and there you go. Now we're joking, but actually I have I have had a few box wines that have been really, really decent. And uh like they're actually one is a rose, one is a, a white wine. And they're actually not that bad. If you're just planning on sitting out in the deck during the summer and just sipping, not that bad. But uh, reds reds in a box are a little iffy for me. But um, whites and rosés, I think you're you're not the white Zinfandels. If you're if you're getting a white Zinfandel, I don't really want to associate with you. But uh, <laughs> you're out of my Hoppian community. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but all right. Do you know how to swirl and sniff and and taste? You know how to taste. Uh, well, Robert just swirled his camera position. There we go. So I've already put too much in to do it properly, but I got to get a nose of it. Yeah. What do you we're get doing... on the nose? Yeah. We're doing a wine tasting here instead of the show. Actually, this is, this is quite nice. I, I'm really enjoying myself. Uh, you're getting your money's worth people. Oh yes. Yeah. This is, this is a free education. I mean, there are, there are classes you can take that you have to pay good money for to get this type of quality information. Yeah. But uh, anyway, that, that's by the end of this. That's right. Well, this is this is my little uh, nerdy bit to throw in here. So the box wine. Also, my kids, we got some boxes from Costco and they built uh, little homes out of them in the in the living room. And they decorated them and wrote on them like private property uh, enter entry only upon asking or permission, something along those lines. So they wanted me to mention that because they always have something for me to mention and I always forget. So kids. Do they know tax theft? They do. Well, they, oh, no, no. They, they know taxation theft. They they know private property is the way to civilize society. Oh, no. Oh, oh. Actual anarchy. I thought there was an ANCOM show. I'm sorry. Oh, right. Uh, Since we're talking about something red. Yeah. All right. I'm sorry. Well, speaking of red obsession, let's pull up that Google description, which is how we start off here. So I'm going to add it to the stream. 
on screen and engage. And uh, we'll get underway. We're going to uncork a good one tonight. So this is Red Obsession. came out in 2013. It got a 6.7 out of 10 on IMDb, 86% on Rotten Tomatoes, 68% on Metacritic, and 77% of the Google users like it. The description reads, For centuries, Bordeaux has assumed a mythical status in the world of fine wine. Chinese demand for France's finest wines has caused the price of Bordeaux to skyrocket, forcing traditional buyers out. It's released in uh, 2013 on August 16th in Hong Kong, directed by Warwick Ross and narrated by Russell Crowe. And uh, after watching this, I thought, oh, I wonder what has happened in the intervening years since, because it seemed to be just skyrocketing uh, price-wise. And they also talked about um, about uh, the financial crisis in the United States impacting wine sales in the U.S. market, and thus that brought in a space for the Chinese market. And then it kind of goes a little bit uh, into the Robert Chinese counterfeit territory after that. But Robert, why don't we get your opening salvo? Uh, why don't you uncork for us uh, a fine wine? Mm, mm. I will uh, attempt to do my best in my most pretentious sommelier behavior. So the film starts off almost like one of those informational videos, like from the 50s, about this is how we make wine. This is how we farm corn. Wow. I got the combine. Thank you, Daniel. Yes. Red obsession. Uh, and then they start interviewing these uh, chateau owners. And it turns into an almost information, like an infomercial level of advertising for French wine. It really goes into the, you get, you get a sense of each chateau owner is a salesman at heart and how much marketing is required for their industry. Because each one starts talking about, oh, you just got to connect with your soul to this wine. It's it's, it's it's on another level, like normal people, they don't understand how incredible this product is. And yeah, I get it. Wine is, you know, fermented fruit juice and it's delicious. Magically delicious. It is, it can be, it could be terrible. It could be delicious based on your particular tastes. But the level of bullshit that is surrounding the sommelier and the high-end wine market is mm, so delicious it it's it really is just the level of pretentiousness and elitism is 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 on another level and uh i i, I lost pretty much all respect for any wine grower watching this film but i did enjoy the um you know the the movie starts off just like really really boring and bland and it doesn't really it's not really telling me much of a story but then it starts talking about history and it starts talking about the chinese markets and how like you were saying the the u.s financial crash kind of lost the u.s market for these wines so then there's all this chinese money because of the rise of china and how they've kind of opened up their markets and that became far more interesting far more interesting to me it actually got into some a bit of a drama and like you, I wondered what happened after this film. Uh, I didn't, I haven't looked it up. So I don't know, maybe one of you two have or knows what, what's happened in the intervening years. But um, it started to actually hold my attention. And 
yeah, this, um, I still don't think that, I mean, I, I, I came off of this movie really appreciating the Chinese entrepreneurs and having a big, serious distaste for the Napoleon granted the God letter that allows us to be this specific special wine and all you other lesser peoples can only make, you know, piddly peon wine. Uh, screw that. Um, the Chinese entrepreneurs were like, we're going to do it. We're going to work our asses off and we're going to make a better wine. And they did. And screw you, you fancy snooty French fucks, because we're going to kick your asses, not only in how to make a better wine, but also in the marketplace. We're going to make a shitload of wine. You guys are limited to this tiny little amount of wine you can make because you've only got so much space and you can only grow so many grapes. But we've got all this huge amount of country and we're just going to dominate and suck it. That's what I got from this movie. And uh, it ended really, really well. I uh, ended up enjoying it quite a bit. All right. Freedom fries. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Let, that's uh that's a, that's a good opening rant. So uh, John Reed, let's, uh, let's get you in on this. Let's get your opening salvo and your take on some of Robert's uh, commentary. Yeah. Well, I think the uh, you know, the boring part that he referenced in the beginning, and I think I didn't really keep time on it, but I think it's, it, fe- it felt like they went in at least 20 minutes on, on the history of Bordeaux and, why Bordeaux is so special as far as like, you know, he referenced uh, Napoleon uh, really paved the way for ranking Bordeaux in the, in the Grand Cru. I mean, I've, I've had plenty of Bordeaux. Uh, none of them have been, you know, astronomically priced as they are. There are a lot of reasonably priced Bordeaux, especially for someone with my budget. Um, but I think that was an important step in establishing, okay, you have this traditional kind of, high-end wine market that a lot of people really highly regard as, as, you know, the pinnacle of, of, of wine examples or wine, um, the, the, the high bar of wine. Uh, and then you have people kind of like smash cut to another country where the people have been oppressed for so long. They've been living in poverty for so long. And then suddenly in the late eighties and nineties, they come into an enormous amount of wealth. And that's one of the notes I wrote here is that, you know, it's amazing how much it's an example of how much wealth can just transform a country and transform um, a people and what they value and that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, in 1960s, the Chinese were just begging not to starve. They were just praying every day not to starve. And now you have uh, a dildo manufacturer who's got this immense wine collection and he's he's got this enormous expendable in, expend, expendable income, and it it just it's just amazing that the 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 kind of luxury that wealth can bring, and it's just something that I know we're getting into kind of like the politics of it that the the communists the socialists they just don't understand how much wealth is how important wealth is in establishing the kind of lifestyle that they kind of dream of that that. Um, well, we can have it all and we can all live like kings if only we would just tax the rich and uh, if, if every worker just owned the means of production. Like we're, we're talking about a country that embraced more capitalist ideals. And as a result, you know, they're buying fucking the most, exp- most expensive wines in the world and they're buy- building collections off them. And it's really an amazing transformation for a country that was that was just on the brink of 
genocide and starvation until Mao Zedong just thankfully, mercifully uh, shuffled off this mortal coil. Yeah, that's a very interesting take. And, and I thought that uh, this kind of blends both of your guys' commentary in that we see these Chinese entrepreneurs, they're almost more capitalist than uh, than you see present time in the United States. And I, th I also think that you bring up a good point, John, in that when they had this newfound wealth, these people had been oppressed for so long, they also had a culture of status and honor and giving gifts to others. We see this in a lot of Asian cultures. And that was almost like a perfect storm for this Bordeaux to have this uh, kind of elite status and, and the status symbolism to it, to where people would only go for a particular brand, buy it as a gift to others to build their own status. And that was a, a real driving force in the ever increasing um, prices that we were seeing uh, in this. And they had that really brilliant uh, marketing gimmick where in the 2008 Olympics, came into play and the number eight apparently is a symbolic for luck. And so it became the perfect gift to give to another person who you're honoring with a gift. Yeah. And it also is interesting how they, the Chinese came out of like, there are still people alive today who lived through the cultural revolution more so back when this movie was made and more so back in like the nineties, of course, but how those people came out having absolutely nothing. And the movie makes this point. And so if, so that creates them like very tolerable, tolerable to risk. Like they're like, well, what's the worst that could happen? I could go back to having nothing. Yeah. We, we did that. We, we did that for like 30 years. We were, we survived it. It's not great but we can go back to that. So we're just going to lay it all out on the line and go for it. And that is a fantastic uh, entrepreneurial attitude to have when you are doing something that, you know, never done before that these, these people went from basically an agrarian society during the cultural revolution, you were farming mostly, and then you've industrialized massively in the past 30, 40, 50 years, it's uh, something new that's happened in their in their lifetimes. Everything they've they've created everything. I mean, the world buys Chinese products, and they're not not necessarily bad products anymore. They used to be crap. The the now they're they can be some of the best products in the world. Yeah. Now I, I wonder how much of it is um, due to state planning with a certain degree of uh, individual decision-making. I'm, I'm a little bit fuzzy on it. I know they, they did lean further into capitalist endeavors and, and thinking, but still hold on to the socialist roots. Uh, but it does seem to have been uh, at least effective in making stuff and making stuff of higher quality and improving the, the lives of your average Chinese person uh, as a result, especially the ones who are in positions of power, the ones that were bestowed with um, you know, the, uh, the government, um, uh, what's the right word I'm looking for, but the ones that, that were basically like tapped to you're, you're going to leave this industry. And, uh, so you're going to, you're going to, you're going to gain on an individual level as a result of this government grant of privilege that, that they've given to you. Yeah. Right. Well, there seems to be like a capitalist, um, streak going through China in the last however many years, 30 or 40 years, uh, it, it is 
the success is very much tied in the government. I mean, we we throw the word fascist around very loosely these days, but I don't know how else to describe it in the sense that, you know, you're allowed to be very successful in China, but there is a very strong understanding that you're not going to be like, a, there's never going to be like a Chinese Koch brothers who really believes in liberty and donates their, their yen or what, yuan to uh, some libertarian Chinese organization um, in that nation. So it, it's, it's very much understood that you can be successful. Like you, you saw the guy who makes the dolls, you saw the guy who makes the doldos. Um, they're, they're living the life of Riley. I mean, they're, they're living, I, I, I envy them so much. And, but it's, it's an understanding that like, okay, well, you're going to have your success, but you're going to, you're going to pay your tribute and you're never going to, uh, kind of draw color outside the lines as it were politically. You're never going to speak against the, the regime. You're never going to talk against the communist party. And, you know, it, it's, it, it's a very, uh, desirable position for many people, not just in China, but whatever country where you can, you can have that kind of status. It's 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 really attractive. Yeah, and it's it's more for just sort of the chosen few. Granted, because it's such high, uh, vast numbers of people, it still is. Even though it's a small percentage, it's still uh, enough people to create a luxury market for goods like this. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, I think a lot of these people built their wealth from real honest hard work, honest entrepreneurship, um, taking advantage, like seeing the opportunities that, you know, when Nixon came over to China and established that kind of relationship where it was easier to do business with American companies, a lot of them seized that opportunity and seized um the, the or, or saw the way to better prosperity through people who already had a lot of wealth and had a lot of capital. Um, so I think as, as the more of those kind of people that established themselves and became more successful, the Chinese kind of, you know, took them aside and said, hey, you're doing pretty well. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a good thing you're doing well. We're allowing you to do well. And it, it'd be a shame if you ever spoke out against the CCP or, or anything like that. You know, this is just me kind of speculating, but I can't believe that we're not, there's a reason we're not hearing about Chinese, more rich Chinese dissidents who really understand the blessings of liberty and blessing, the blessings of capitalism, why they're not speaking out against the CCP. I mean, hell, we have John Cena and NBA players apologizing for making completely innocent remarks about Taiwan and China. Um, you can only understand, you can almost only imagine what kind of pressure those business owners over in China are actually under. Right. Yeah. I know that Jack Ma is famous for being a very, uh, very rich Chinese person. I think he started Alibaba or ran Alibaba and I, it's a bit fuzzy, but I know there were recent stories about things happening to him. He had gone missing perhaps for a while. And I think you're right in that they have this social credit system to where if you do speak out against the party, you lose privileges and you lose uh, the ability to do things in, in everyday life, which sounds uh, almost like something that's happening in present time, almost worldwide uh, at the moment, or attempted to be implemented anyway. At least in New York City and Los Angeles. Right. And, and in test markets, yes. It's, they're, yeah. they're rolling it out in test markets. Soon to Coming be soon. soon. In, Coming soon uh, to a theater near you. Exactly.
Yeah. Well, I wanted to um, get into a bit more of the history of the Bordeaux region because it also plays into the pricing that they were talking about, where there was a perfect blend of the type of soil and climate and how much wind and rain and sun they get in a given year that uh, translates into the quality of the wine and the yield that year. And when the things are all just right, which only happens like every decade or two, though it seems like they locked out in 2009, 2010 uh, in the movie, which seems a little suspect to me. Um, but when those elements are all going well, that would increase the yield, right? As well as the quality, which in a supply and demand scenario would mean that there's more supply for this product. Uh, so that would be a downward pressure on the price. But then they found the new Chinese market, which had insatiable demand, which would put demand pressure on it to raise the price. And I think that was one of the key things. And then they were also withholding uh, certain amounts of a vintage because they, they have like they still have the 82. They still have, you know, they have like in the cellars, they have their old vintages from years past and they only parcel them out in very small amounts. And it's so it's, it really feels like there's this weird mechanism by which it's not solely a price, supply and demand price, but there's also like a gatekeeper price where they're only going to sell a certain amount of it, no matter the cost, no matter what someone's willing to pay, they will only allocate a certain amount because they want to save it for the future when it might be more valuable. So it's almost like this um, investment speculation type scenario, or they want to make sure it's still available um, in, at some level, like they don't want to ever sell out completely of the 82, right? Because the 82 is a very famous vintage. that was really, really good. And it might affect them negatively, maybe in a marketing aspect, if all the 82s were gone. But so it's, it took me a while mm -hmm. to like try to understand the nuances of how this works, because in traditional, you know, Austrian economics, it seems, you know, a little bit more fundamentally simple. So, John, yeah. do you have any, or Robert, do you have a specific take on that? And we'll go to John. Well, th there's definitely that element of the the chateau owners m holding back stock and not wanting to sell out of any particular vintage, which I seemed very much like a speculator type thing, where they wanted to always have some available, but not always sell it, so, creating this air of exclusivity, like. If I approve of you, maybe I'll sell it to you. Maybe we'll see. And maybe I can maybe I can sell you a bottle or two. Maybe. But if you're a really really good friend of mine, maybe I can find another bottle somehow. Uh, it seemed like that kind of a deal. But the thing that I found the most interesting with the pricing was, and they didn't go into detail. I, I would appreciate it if it was more detail oriented in the film. But they said that that the pricing was directly linked to the critics evaluation of the crop or the the vintage and that seemed really really weird like as far as i know it's the only industry that operates this way like as if you know imagine if in the movie industry a movie comes out and all the critics watch it and based on their evaluation was how much the ticket cost to watch the film that would be interesting but bizarre like here's this piece of shit film it, it costs a penny or it's free whatever we don't care but here's this oscar winner that we know it's going to win an oscar and that's going to be 50 bucks 
I, I don't think that pricing structure would work too well in the movie industry, but it seems to work really well in the wine industry. But I mean, at, at least with the wine industry, you have actual scarcity. You don't have artificial scarcity like withholding a movie, whereas once a movie gets out there, you know, it can get copied and shared or whatever. An infinite number of people could watch it an infinite number of times once it's released. But with wine, you're you're you've got a certain amount of bottles. And based on what the critics say, you are going to base your price of that vintage for everybody. And that just, it seems weird because you could easily, like the movie says, price out your entire customer base based on the opinion of some critics. Or you could sell out every bottle and make hardly any money at all based on same critics. And it also allows for all kinds of sneaky shenanigans with the critics, mm -hmm. much in the way that but Moody's evaluated stocks and bonds and like options and whatnots with the, the financial crash of 2007, 2008. Like, oh yeah, this is triple A rated. Don't worry about it. T triple top, A, it's totally safe. Quality. You could just, money in the bank, baby. Just buy, spend all your money. Don't worry about it. Um, I mean, obviously, there's a certain amount of bullshit that goes into um, wine. Like, I, I don't know. I, maybe I don't have a refined palate. And maybe you need to have drink so much and then really to taste the differences. And it's a really um, high skill cap. Maybe I, maybe it is. Maybe I, I don't know. Maybe I just don't have it. I'm just a, a peon. I have no appreciation for it. Um, or maybe it is just all marketing. And that, uh, you know, the Lafitte's have, Ross slash Rothschilds have made a fantastic job of doing that and therefore creating a massive demand for their particular brand when maybe the quality level between one Bordeaux and another isn't that much different, but the, the price level for that is much, much higher because of the demand. And I am totally fine with that. Totally, totally fine. And I'm totally fine with this weird system too. It seems to be completely voluntary, but it just seems like it's, a, it's just a weird way of doing things. You would think you would just put the wine out and then maybe a small amount and see how well it sells. And then uh, maybe that's, maybe I'm just ignorant of the way the, the wine industry works. Maybe you, you can't, maybe you need to have some sort of a grading system in order to set prices. But obviously, there's so much, like the movie also goes into the secondary markets and how much trading goes on in the secondary markets. There was a, an entire company that just dealt in trading wine of older vintages as investments or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and those prices were completely, completely free market created, like supply and demand. So it, I don't know. It, I don't have a, a real strong take on anything immoral going on or anything like that. It just, it just, it just struck me as odd. I don't know. Did it strike you as odd, Daniel or John, or is this totally normal in the wine industry? Uh, it seems to me that everybody else in the wine industry just puts their product out and then prices it as they think it'll sell. And then either it does sell or it doesn't, but maybe that doesn't work when you get to the super high echelon in the snooty uh, fruit juice uh, fermenting business. Yeah, they've also got like they've almost had like four or five different pricing systems in place all simultaneously 
working together in concert to come up with the final purchase price that someone's going to pay. You know, so you've got like when there were um, ration tickets in, in World War II, if you were a cute girl, you'd get the meat. But if you were just a Joe Blow with the ration ticket, you wouldn't get it. So like certain levels of other factors would come into play into how much somebody was willing or someone would have to pay for something or get something at all. And then you've also got almost the taxi medallion status of the the uh, Napoleonic uh, bestowing that royalty decree on it. And then you've also got the potentially corruptible um, system of critics rating it. And, and they're rating each one individually, but then they talk about the entire year that year's crop of the entire region being either good or bad. And so there's like an incentive for the critics to sort of like trend upward as the, you know, the price would be better. And, but then certain mm -hmm. ones, certain, uh, certain chateaus would be more exclusive or better than others. Um, so yeah, there's just so many different factors that kind of go into this. And then you've got that collateralization of everything that seemed to be like the rage in the two thousands and, and thereafter. So I don't know how much of that uh, you, you mentioned that's free market, the speculation on that. I mean, maybe, but that's also driven a lot by um, monetary inflation, where the money has to go into something, investable goods or uh, rare commodities and artwork and things like that are often a place where that kind of that, that amount of money can go uh, as, as a bit of a hedge, I guess, against inflationary pressures. Sure. Anyway, I've sort of talked a bunch of nonsense there. Let's get John in on, on your take on this pricing and, and the several different ways it seems to be uh, arrived at. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in what both of you said there. Well, first of all, I do think there's a lot of bullshit in line. And I think the bullshit ties into what the Austrians came up, revolutionized as far as the subjective theory of value in the sense that, you know, it's, it's like diamonds and water. You know, water is obviously much more valuable than diamonds as far as life-sustaining abilities. But when you get to a point in society where you have plenty of water, then diamonds become, because they're so rare, become that much more valuable. And I think it's the same thing with wine here. Um, because Bordeaux is historically for hundreds, if not thousands of years, been such a highly regarded uh, style of wine uh, that, you know, once, the, once a society like the Chinese get this vast amount of wealth, you know, they, they start looking for uh the, the the big status symbols the kind of the kind of symbols that say you know hey i've made it i've got money it's kind of like if somebody wins the lottery and they've got now a hundred million dollars in the bank they start buying apartments that and decorating them in all gold like a la donald trump and his manhattan apartments it's it's very much in that sense um and i think it it has a lot to do with you know um well, well, first of all, I have to say that, you know, wine as a store of value is very much like gold. You know, the, the, the gentleman at the beginning of the film who was talking about like how a lot of his clients buy wine because they speculate that it's going to increase in value over time. Well, you know, that's the same thing as if you buy silver or gold or crypto at a, at a low price because you think it's going to add it's going to gain value over time. It's the same thing here. The thing about wine is that eventually it's going to peak at one point, like the 82s that are so prevalent in this film, they're going to peak at some point and then they're going to ultimately decline and turn into vinegar basically. Um, so it's all a matter of 
uh, that status, um, kind of holding on to something for a, for a little while. Although that the some of the people who were buying up all those, they, they didn't seem to have a real plan as far as when they were going to let go of those wines or whether they were going to drink them uh, at, at a certain point. I'm sure they drink some of them, but that collection was so vast, like the one... The one behind uh, Daniel there uh, is an example. I mean, that that guy's never going to drink that many wines. Even if he started like you know yesterday, he's never going to drink that many wine, that many bottles of wine. So it, it's it's kind of a moot point, you know. And as far as subjective value goes, you know, I've drank enough. I've drunk enough wine that, you know, I know the difference between, um, you know, the the twenty dollar bottle of California Pinot Noir that you get. Uh, in your local wine store and the 80 or 90 or $100 bottle of Burgundy you get from, you know, a, a specialty shop. You know, there there is a difference in the wine. There is a discernible kind of, uh, of quality that you get that you know is from someone who really cares about the, the winemaking process. Not people in California, you know, some of the the best Pinot Noirs I've had recently are from Oregon or from the Willamette Valley. Uh, so it, again, it's really all subjective, but there is definitely um, a quality that's, that's different with Burgundies. And I'm sure, you know, I haven't uh, drunk a lot of like high end Bordeaux, but uh, I think, I think there is definitely a, a quality in wine that you would find like the difference between um, a Hyundai and a Mercedes in, in the car world, you know, that sort of thing. So while subjective value does play a part in here, I think there is something really uh, uh, concrete about, you know, what what kind of wine that the, the Chinese in this film particularly were targeting. Although once the, once the bad vintages ha happened, once the hail came, once the, the colder air came in and, and kind of ruined the one vintage, you saw that subjective value just plummet like that. And the, the bubble that they talked about, which is a bubble, but is it an artificial bubble? Is there just a real like market bubble in the sense that you're not getting a, a inflated credit um, uh, inflation here. You're getting like a, um, a speculative value that you're, you're, you're speculating what a wine is going to be worth, but, but then like the future vintages, if they're not up to the, up to par, you're not going to invest as much in them. So it, it's I think it really is the free market at work, and I think it is the difference between an artificially uh, bank created bubble and a, and a free market created bubble where people just realize, oh, hey, maybe that wine isn't worth as much as it was when I bought it five years ago. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that, and I also think that when the Chinese market sort of opened up and it was this sort of new market discovering this, there was a lot of demand that was discovered there. And so that's gonna have an upward pressure on price. Uh, the other angle I was thinking about was each year is a different vintage and has varying qualities. They said that the last good one was 82 and over the course of the decades since, they had been selling that 82 over time, diminishing that supply. And I, I would assume that would make the price of the 82 keep going up and up as the supply went down. And then they hit 2009 and they finally get another good year, good vintage. And that gets everyone excited. They get all these really high scores and they start opening up the Chinese market because the U.S. market is, is slowing down due to the financial crisis. But wouldn't then the 2010 being as good of a, a vintage as 2009, 
roughly double the available supply of good vintage. Like for a long time, you just had the 82. And then you had 20 years of mediocre, lesser vintages. So the 82 really stood out. Then you get 2009 come along and then 2010 right on top of that. I wonder if it's just, even though you've effectively doubled the supply of these highly rated vintages, that was counteracted by the increased demand that we saw from, from China. So even though the supply is doubled, the demand outstrips that significantly enough to where we see that pricing increase. And then we have 2011 come along and the hail and the bad weather and the vintage isn't very good. And this is where Robert comes in. The Chinese people have recognized, hey, this wine stuff, this Lafitte stuff, people are clamoring for this. We can make our own. And so then they start their own wineries and they, they've they tr- they've gone to France and they've trained and, and seen how it operates. And they've tried to replicate the uh, conditions and the soil and um, basically recreate their own. And this isn't even like the counterfeit side. This is just the Chinese government getting people in levels of expertise to be able to try to recreate this product. And then there's also people finding empty bottles of Lafitte and putting putting my box wine in it, which is another uh, layer of counterfeiting that's, that's going on in this. So I just spurted out a bunch of stuff. I, I thought there was a question or two in there and then I just kept going. But uh, Robert, why don't you pick up what I'm putting down and uh, take us to the races? Sure, yeah. So the I thought it was interesting how seems to be pretty much in every market where there's high-end whatever, like Louis Vuitton bags or any kind of fashionable item that is valuable enough to get counterfeited. There's a certain number of the manufacturers who just hate it and they will fight it. And then there's some that go, oh, oh that's nice. Yeah, we've made it. Yeah, cool. We're, we're so awesome that People want to imitate us and pretend to be us. And right. I thought there's it was interesting. A, there's one one chateau that said that, right? He was like sort of impressed. Yeah, by he it, was but like saddened by it. Yeah, he was flattered to a certain extent. And he, he uh, even the ones that fight it recognize that it's futile to really find the people and to take out the 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 big boss, as they put it. Like uh, you could go to China and find a counterfeit bottle, but actually tracing it back to the source and eradicating it is really a kind of a fool's errand. Um, I thought it was interesting how in China, it's a very much a cultural thing. At least that's how the movie explained it and why that, that there's this rampant counterfeiting coming from China. Not that they just manufacture all kinds of goods and they are, have zero moral qualms about slapping their Louis Vuitton sticker on the bag they just made, but, but that it's actually a form of flattery and that they recognize like it's an homage to like an honorable thing. Right. It's an honorable, like they, they recognize the, the greatness of this artist and this is their imitation of that as, uh, an honorific, uh, and that they talked about how it even dates back thousands of years where they will have sculptures and then they'll have copies of those sculptures and they are clear fakes or, you know, counterfeits or honor type things, copies um, from a purely uh, economic standpoint. We've talked about this in the past, how counterfeiting seeks to actually, you know, improves the brand. Uh, people recognize that 
well, if people are even counterfeiting this, then it must be really good. And it's, it works as sort of a free advertising for that brand. And so, yes, for every time someone buys a cheap bottle of Lafitte and drinks it and goes, oh, what is this garbage? This is obviously fake. I got hornswoggled. Uh, they, they recognize that the actual Lafitte is uh, something probably, probably outside of their, their price range or that it's actually something quite amazing to behold or to taste. So, uh, yeah, the actual, the benefits of, did, did Brother Block go do a thing in defense yeah. of counterfeiters? Yeah. Yeah. In defending the undefendable, um, I, I can look up the particular article defending the counterfeiter and uh, post it on our show notes page. It is a pretty interesting take. All of his takes are pretty interesting and uh, they run counter to what you would normally think. Uh, Walter Block is an interesting thinker. Indeed. Yeah, so I wanted to take off on that just a little bit. I think that there was one counterfeiter who was so good that the brand actually sought them out to become their new manufacturer. And uh, that's real fuzzy in my in my head, but I'm sure there's an article about it from maybe five, 10 years ago. So I'll try to find that, put that on the show notes page as well. There is, a, by the way, there's another uh, documentary called Sour Grapes that is a, a, a specifically about counterfeit wine and a big... Um, kerfuffle that happened in the, the the wine auction world where oh. a lot of a lot of people who bought uh what they thought was high-end wine was actually uh relabeled kind of cheaper wine so it's it's that's that might be a one to just a just check out one day if you want to like get into the counterfeit wine kind of subject like that is an interesting aspect of it right i mean this is this is a product that you can't necessarily inspect the quality of until you have opened it and tasted it or smelled it or whatever yeah. until you've basically and devalued to, it massively. Right. To the bullshit element. Uh, like if you give a sommelier or master sommelier, a bottle of counterfeit wine that has an 82 Lafitte label on it, he might go through the whole swirling and sniffing and tasting process and decide that it's like, it's among the best wines he's ever had just because he knows he's he's drinking a wine from a bottle that has that Lafitte label, that 82 Lafitte label, and he doesn't want to look like a fool. So, um, But ultimately, if he finds out that he, he drank a counterfeit bottle, he's going to look like a bigger fool. So there is a, a grand level of bullshit to wine tasting and, and that kind of... I mean, uh, one of the biggest drivers of california the way california wine is made is um robert parker who is uh wine who founded wine advocate magazine he he's a lawyer but he likes in the 70s he you know just really liked wine and he wanted to start this wine magazine but his tastes are big bold reds and uh you know he would give give the big bold reds a high rating so um and those wines with high ratings would sell. So the California winemakers would tailor their style of winemaking to make them bigger and bolder and, and more alcoholic. And to just anything to please Robert Parker, regardless of whether, you know, the winemaker had a particular passion for, for a particular style of wine, whether it was low alcohol or less fruit or, or a little drier or a little more acidic. Um, it, it all depends. Robert Parker was the main driver of how California wines were made. So it's, it really is kind of like the free market at work. I mean, you could say Robert Parker acted as like kind of like a dictator in wine, but it really was the market responding to 
whatever the masses were responding to themselves. If if everybody was was hanging on Robert Parker's every word, then the winemakers wanted to make sure that they were uh, tailoring their wines to whatever the masses were going to appreciate based on what Robert Parker said. So it it is a lot of bullshit, but if you start to taste a lot of wines and you start to differentiate what makes a good wine versus a bad wine, then you don't really care about those numbers, like 93 rating or 90 rating or whatever. You just start to to, to just differentiate what makes a good wine uh, and what suits your taste. Like, not even what, what is a good wine. It's just what suits your taste. And nobody's going to... If you love Cavett, if you love Mondavi, if you like Woodbridge, you know, like, good, God bless you, you know. But if you... If you want to explore more, if you want to get into Burgundies, into Volnays, into Bordeaux, whatever, whatever, uh, the, the the world's opening up to winemaking. There's a lot of there's a lot of new world winemakers that uh, you can explore, and it's it's a lot most a lot of my favorite Pinot Noirs or Cabernet Sauvignons or Malbecs are come from South America. So it's it's not just French. It's it's a whole world opening up to to winemaking. Yeah. Now, when you were talking about the sommeliers, perhaps through uh, ego or hubris, yep. or perhaps being paid off. Uh, and we also talked about the uh, the critics, perhaps being a, a vector of being able to be paid off to influence the prices. It reminds me of the payola scandal where DJs would be paid by the record labels to promote specific albums and songs to be played on the radio, I think in the 50s or 60s, and it became this big scandal. Uh, and it, it's almost, uh, you know, it, they might have actually liked the songs, but because there was pay to play kind of going on, it sort of tainted it and it almost amounts to a bit of a fraud, sort of like related to counterfeiting. Um, if it's an homage or if somebody knowingly buys something and they know that it's not authentic, but they still buy it anyway uh, because they like the look of it or whatever, that's a different thing than buying the thing thinking it's the genuine article and being defrauded and it not being the genuine article. I, I dated a girl in the early 2000s. We, we would go to New York City sometimes, and she would specifically buy knockoff Louis Vuitton handbags. That she right. knew, Knowingly. That yeah. She knew were fake, but she wanted the, the Louis Vuitton logo, and she didn't really give a, give a crap if it, if it was fake or not. Right. And I always see the argument from brands who complain about that, saying, well, you're, you're taking the cachet of our brand, and that's resulting in lost sales. I kind of disagree. That person was never going to buy right. The, right. the genuine article for five, eight hundred dollars, right. whatever. You know, they're they're buying the thirty dollar one that they find on Sixth Avenue. And they're and they're carrying on around the logo for for people who probably can't afford it, you know? Right. Free advertising. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's uh, one of the Walter Blocking arguments, right? When when somebody promotes something that's not theirs, even if they promote it as the as if they had made it, then you're still getting the awareness out there you're sort of like freely marketing it though that does seem a bit fraudulent to misrepresent that hey i made this when in fact you did not yeah and yeah but in the case of a counterfeiter though they actually did make it and if we are not you know for intellectual property then can't shouldn't we be completely in support of the counterfeiter even not if, if they're they misrepresenting saying... it they're making they're making the knockoff but are they are they actually saying that hey this is a legitimate actual Louis Vuitton bag or this is no, 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 this not, is not, this is a not, bag and I put the Louis Vuitton logo on it? Not, but right, I yeah, it. there's not there's two distinct kind of systems here. There's the one where they knowingly make something that that everyone knows isn't real, right? Right. That's okay in my mind. 
the other one where they're emptying a genuine Lafitte bottle and dumping my box wine in there and recapping it and saying, here's Lafitte. That's fraudulent. Yeah, if, yes. Let me tell you, if, you if you think you're getting a genuine Louis Vuitton bag <laughs> from a Jamaican guy on the street in New York City for $30, yeah, that's on you, man. Like, it I, pretty I, much I, is, isn't it, though? That's got to be on the buyer. Yeah. Buyer got beware. I <laughs> got a bridge to sell you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, the, but the fraudulent where you're misrepresenting something as the genuine article and trying to sell it at that high price or right enough right. Of if a you were to deal right if you if you bought if you made this louis vuitton bag and you sold it on sixth avenue for three thousand dollars or whatever it's still kind of on the person to go why isn't this in the louis vuitton store right I, but i get your point like yeah and there might be some people in in this example in the wine example who would buy a bottle of wine they knew was not an 82 Lafitte but had the label on it just so they could put it on their rack and mm -hmm. show their friends who came over like hey I got an 82 Lafitte here uh you know you can never taste it because it's it's too valuable to open right now and uh so people will never know but I could I could totally see that as far as having a, a product a counterfeit product that's merely on your shelf for a status simple Right, because yeah, it's got to be that, the best. It's got to be the best thing to counterfeit, right? Yeah, like the right. most valuable wine, because it'll never get opened and you'll never get found out. I used right. to I used to work for QVC, and we used to sell a, a line of jewelry called Diamondique, and they were like really brilliant stones that looked, you know, looked fabulous, but they weren't real diamonds. But they were they were something that could that you know the QVC buyer could afford, and it made them feel glamorous it made them feel like high-end it made them feel like they nobody had, thought like among their friends yeah but nobody thought oh this is a ten thousand dollar diamond they knew exactly. it was a two hundred dollar diamond eek they're elite now maybe if they lived in a trailer park their their neighbors saw them on the, with this big rock on their hand they probably didn't think like oh you suddenly hit the lottery and you're still living in this piece of shit trailer park but though i have seen that too where where people have a nice car and it shitty trailer park house well those are drug dealers <laughs> but that's also one of those status symbol things Very right true. and exactly. and with the you know even with the genuine article of lafitte i mean those are selling for ten thousand dollars a bottle or whatever the numbers were so yeah it totally makes sense that somebody would be willing to knowingly buy a knockoff lafitte or an emptied one that they put you know my box wine in for five hundred dollars to put on the shelf to impress their friends because that's what the rich guys are doing why why can't i you know, get a little bit of status from a similar kind of setup. Right. And what did you guys think of the concerns of the Chateau owners with the, uh, the possibility of pricing out their customer base with their, with their increased wine prices? It seemed to me that they, they, they were worried about having like too much stock and not being able to move it because, and then like maybe the, the world moving on to a new taste or something like that. Maybe people lost their, you know, like the, the lost their taste for Bordeaux wines or it was just way too expensive. And that, um, you know, they required more of this kind of like, I don't know, middle-class purchasing as opposed to maybe all the high end buyers that are only going to buy so much of it. I don't know. It, the, the movie seemed to make a big deal 
out of potentially pricing their customers out of the market. But it, I don't know, it seemed like they would all balance out economically. I don't know. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? I would think it would balance out because the market would clear at the lower prices over time, eventually. Even if you had to move your, your inventory at a lower price, I mean, you're still you're still making some money you're still staying afloat and then hopefully you know you'll have good years in the future or uh i don't know right what but were the, you the, say? yeah go ahead go ahead john yeah I, I mean i think it's it's the free market at work and you know i'm sure there are plenty of products that you know uh, you know let's just say like the vcr you know i mean you could you could keep making vcrs as long as you wanted, but you know, the, when people started moving on to DVDs and, and Blu-rays, um, then you, you either had to uh, realize that you were putting your resources into something that people didn't want anymore, or, you know, you, you had to, you had to adjust the market. So I think um, when something like, if, if you have like a Bordeaux wine, if you have like a, if you're a Chateau who's been, who's been selling Bordeaux wine for, However, many years at a very high end price, then uh, if the if the market starts to go down, then you have to adjust your your harvest, your planning, your winemaking uh, accordingly. Um, and that's not to say that the you know you can't have another vintage like you had in two thousand nine or two thousand ten, where expectations are very high, the critics are very hot on it, and then you're you're right back in it. So it's it's all a matter. Of, I think this is why we don't want governments coming in and fixing prices or because if, if they, if the French government came in and fixed the price of a Bordeaux wine that what for a vintage that wasn't good or for several vintages that weren't good, then you're getting lower quality of wine, but still paying, paying the high end price. And that's just, just counterproductive to the kind of quality that customers want and deserve. So I, I think it's, it's a great free market mechanism to have, um, Bordeaux that aren't performing as well sell at a lower price. Let's yeah. say, let's say for example, like the movie kind of made the Chinese market out to be the saviors of Bordeaux wine. Like they lost the American market, but then, oh, here comes the Chinese market on like gangbusters. We we're able to market ourselves very well. There's a high demand, especially among this new nouveau reach Chinese area. But let's say that China is still stuck in the cultural revolution. And nobody else is interested in, in Bordeaux wine. The, 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 the economy in the United States collapses in 2008. They lose that massive market, which the United States used to be the number one buyer, as I, as I think the movie said. Mm -hmm. So then they lose that. Does, but but there's, still there's still this relationship between the critics setting the price. Now... I didn't quite follow or they, the movie wasn't quite specific in that the critics actually came along and they would rate it, right? Like this is a, a 90 or a 95 or whatever did, but then did the Chateau owners come in and say, okay, a 95 is going to equal to $500 a bottle. A 90 is going to equal to $400 a bottle. Did they do that? Or did the critics come in and set that? Or how did that work? I, I think that that's the situation is that, the critics would give a score and then the chateaus would say, okay, we think that the high scores for this good vintage year are going to yield this price. So we're going to come up with this high price and, 
and so on. So I think it's, it's it was a combination of the critics score and then the Chateau would translate that score into a price that they would try to th- market it at. Okay. So they, they were, the, the Chateau owners are still, they weren't like reliant or bound by some agreement with the, the critics. They, they could freely set the, the price to be like five bucks a bottle if they wanted to. I would think Even so. if it was a hundred. Right. Okay. So like, let's say the Chinese market didn't open up like, like your scenario, the U S market dries up for a while. Well, there's a market clearing price. I'm sure that there's still some demand at some price. And so they would just have to lower that price to find the buyers. Right. Well, I think, yeah, I think that the reason that the American market dried up for the, for the Bordeaux is, is, is simply because of the Chinese. It's sort of like if you bought T-bone steaks from your local grocer because you were, you know, very well to do. Um, and then your neighbor again, hits the lottery and he starts buying up all the T-bone steaks where you start looking for other cuts of meat. And it's, you know, you let, you let your neighbor just buy up all the T-bone steaks. And I think that's it's at the happened. new higher price. Yeah. At the new higher price. And this is exactly what happened. It's just like, it's not the Americans didn't like Bordeaux anymore. It's just that they, you know, the, the Chinese inflated the price to a, to a level where American buyers who are probably more, to the fight, you know, it, the financial crisis obviously played a part in this. Uh, to the part to the point where they started looking for alternatives, and like you know, I said before, you know, there are a lot of quality wines coming out of South America, South Africa, all these different New World regions that don't necessarily rely on the ground crew kind of rating that you you expect. I mean, you can get very, very, very good wine at you know a very reasonable price. Uh, not a board, it, even in Bordeaux, you were talking about Grand Cru, which is a very highly rated wine and automatically carries with it a high price. So, I mean, I've bought Bordeaux for $20 or, or $15. You know, they're technically they're less quality, less quality, but you know, you can still get a Bordeaux. I mean, all Bordeaux is is a, is a combination of Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot. So, it's 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 that style, it's not necessarily the quality you're looking for, but it's, it's that style. It's that preference to whatever you're eating. It's, it, it's all subjective. It, it is an all subjective value. Is it similar? The, yeah. Is it similar, John, in that they, they can call it a Bordeaux style unless it's actually from Bordeaux, sort of like Champagne is a yeah. region of France. So officially only Champagne can come from Champagne and anything else is a sparkling wine or whatever. Is Bordeaux sort of similar in that regard? Exactly. There are plenty of California wines that are made in the Bordeaux style. Uh, meaning that they're they're blended with Cabernet and Merlot, but the, you can't call them Bordeaux because they're not from the Bordeaux region. So it's a uh, it's all a matter of it's all a matter of semantics in in many ways. But um, yeah, you can get very quality wines that are made in the exact same style. But um, yeah. Okay. Well, so we're we're over an hour already. So we should probably actually get into some final summary review and, and give us our own wine enthusiast score. Um, I guess it's a scale out of a hundred. So I guess we would uh, need to go with that for this one. Uh, unless either of you have any final notes before we do that. Um, not really. I think we covered most of it. Yeah. I mean, it, it would be really interesting to see if uh, now that, you know, <laughs> it's funny because, you know, we have the, the Chinese virus that's, that's plagued the world, you know, and it, it's, it, are the, are the Chinese, are the Chinese back in their dominant position in the sense that, you know, 
I see Wuhan like they have those pool, those public pools that have like three thousand people floating in them. Are they are they back to life and are they back to buying Bordeaux wines or or have they moved on to a new a new region uh, in in the world? Maybe not necessarily France, but you know whatever South America, California. Are they buying up wine somewhere else? Yeah, I don't know. I, I do recall that Wuhan opened up again and had nightclubs and things going on, but I want to say that was about a year ago. And surprisingly, I've seen hardly anything uh, about it since other than discussions of a certain lab maybe being funded, maybe not, maybe leaking, maybe not. Um, but all talk of like the effects on the ground in China and the Wuhan area, I, I've, I'm almost oblivious to in the past year. Yeah, I'm sure it's all up the up and up. Sure, you're right. <laughs> all right, Robert, why don't you lead us off and give us your uh, sommelier rating out of uh, out of a hundred points possible? Okay, so Red Obsession uh, is it worth watching in 2021? This ancient film from 2013. Uh, yeah, I think so. If you have any kind of interest in wine or economics, or if you're just interested in the history. It's very much plays out kind of like a history it teaches you a little bit about the wine industry stuff. I certainly did not know. I didn't know uh, about the um, I, I, I certainly was aware of the vast wealth being generated in China. And I was been cheering that on for quite some time. Uh, I didn't know that they were getting into wine, but it would make sense that like our guest was saying that uh, if you've got a whole bunch of disposable income. Uh, you might start taking an interest in the finer things in life. Um, that's not true of the vast majority of Chinese quite yet, but their level of wealth keeps rising and rising and rising. So uh, I think at one point the movie, so that was in 2012, 2013 at time, they were talking about the average uh, consumption in China was one bottle a year for China, uh, whereas in the United States it was like 20 or 30 or something like that, 35. I don't remember what it was, but um uh, hopefully that will continue to trend upwards not that i give a shit about the wine industry um it's a perfectly fine beverage but i don't know if i'll ever be one of those people not that i look down on them in any way you find what you like in this world and you go for it i i think if you find some joy in wine man all more power to you that's fantastic um i i really enjoyed seeing the the entrepreneurial spirit of the Chinese that they depicted in this film. Um, of course, there's probably a bunch of fascistic issues. It's not a completely free market. There, it, you speak out against the Chinese government, it's a nightmare. Um, they are a totalitarian back of uh, bag of dicks. Let's put it that way. Uh, but the the film Red Obsession starts off pretty dry. Eh, wine reference, and then it gets a little bit meaty. Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> uh, that it gets a little bit meaty. That starts actually getting into some interesting story. So hints of uh, apricot and a nice finish. Yeah, it definitely has a nice finish to it. Definitely uh, finishes strong on the palate. Um, so I am going to give this one. I, I don't think it's a fantastic film. Uh, it's nice and short, which I appreciated. It didn't stick around too long. It didn't overstay its welcome. Uh, and it was interesting and it did teach me something. So for that... I have to give it a positive review for sure. Uh, but I don't think it's like a, it's not, you know, an amazing documentary or anything. It's not revealing, um, you know, anything particularly juicy. 
other than grapes. So uh, I will give this one a, uh, I don't know, what's a bad rating for a wine? Do they even go into the sub 50s? Can you get like a 20 wine and then that sells for like a, a few dollars? I don't even know. If you I think they did not even bother below selling 80, it at that you're point. You're talking about a bad wine. 80, low 80s, okay. Low 80s, that's a bad wine? Yeah. Well, then this is going to be a really, really bad wine. But you still but it'll be a, It's a decent movie. So I would, I'm going to give this one a 73. Oh. Yeah, that's that's a pretty dang good movie, but it's a bad, bad wine. Okay. All right, Robert. Well, that, that's not too bad. That That's better than I was expecting out of you, especially when I was watching this. I was like, oh, no. Robert hates musicals, but man, following up a musical with a documentary <laughs> about wine. But, yeah, uh, I mean, usually documentaries are all about the subject matter, and I do enjoy a good doc but it's got to have good subject matter. And I thought that this was going to be a little bit too, too dry too nothing, nothing to see here, but then they did kind of change it around with the, uh, the Chinese angle. So I appreciated that. Cause I, I was ignorant of all that. All right, cool. So 73. So, uh, I'll get underway here. So I'm going to say that, um, red obsession has notes of dark fruits, plum, chocolate, and vanilla. And it's, uh, grown in a nice climate uh, in a region that boasts a need for sunglasses by day and fleece jackets by night. It's a great wine and a great price. Um, I thought that uh, having Russell Crowe's narration was pretty good. I've, I've seen a Facebook post a while back where it said, uh, if you could have anyone except for Morgan Freeman narrate your life, who would it be? And now that, I, now that I've seen this movie, I think maybe Russell Crowe would be a good, good candidate for that. Uh, I found it informative. I thought that the history side of it was the most interesting. Uh, for me, just learning about the region and Napoleon's influence and how it goes back to Roman times. And they're sort of harkening back on that history as uh, a reason for why it's going to weather any storm and stick around. And, and that's why they're willing to sort of continue on in spite of uh, perhaps this this additional competition from China, uh, copying a lot of the things that they're doing. That they, they think that they're going to be resilient because they have that history to lean on. And so that also kind of plays in this objective value uh, a bit and the entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, so I, I thought that this was really well done and interesting. I, I learned a lot and uh, I appreciate John for you bringing this up because it gave us plenty of things to discuss and get into some economic angles and some sort of advanced um, supply and demand pricing uh, theorizing, which uh, I think I still need to do some thinking through. But uh, I'm going to give this an 82 uh, just because that's a good year for Lafitte, gangster style. So John, what's your take and uh, final score, sir? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to look at this um, through the lens of somebody who's not into wine. Um, I think it's a very good movie as far as, like, to, to everybody's point, it's very educational. You, If you don't know anything about wine, the wine world, then you learn a lot in this movie. Um, I think it's, to me, someone like me, it's very, you know, interesting. I, I actually saw this movie once, and this is actually the only second time I've seen it when uh, I knew I was doing this, so... Um, I love this kind of film. Personally, I would have given an 80, but I'm just going to take my own personal prejudices out of it. And I'm going to give it a 70. I think it's an okay documentary. And I think it's a really interesting subject to me. And I think it's really well done, but I can see how a lot of people might be turned off by it. So I'm going to give it a 70. And I think the one element that we missed in all this if you remember the part where they tie in like the the wine industry, the French wine industry with the with the Chinese beauty pageant, you remember that part? Mm. If you remember 
that one girl with the dark eyes and the dark hair totally hot. Am I right? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, like, she was totally worth it, like, that girl. So you're going to give her a high high score? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, like, the, the dark hair, dark eyes girl, like. Okay. See, I, I thought you were going to go low pan style, the girl with the green eyes. Bring me the girl with green eyes. Yeah, was there was there a girl with green eyes yeah. in this film? Yeah. I, don't think so. I have no idea. <laughs> dark hair, dark eyes. She was totally hot. Yeah, like she's worth it. Okay. All right. Well, thank you for that, John. Uh, we'll be sure to edit this portion out so your fiance doesn't hear that. Um, but you know, if, if she does hear it and doesn't doesn't mind, you might have found a winner. So good job. Well done, sir. Congratulations. I will own her soon. <laughs> it, it matters not what she thinks so you, we're going to use the alternate definition of husbandry exactly she all will right. speak when spoken to <laughs> all right you're going to get a talking to you later i'm sure all right well this was a lot of fun and and i appreciate the uh, the humor at the end here because it's very reminiscent of a recent passing and that is of course the great norm mcdonald one of the goats of all time uh, he died of cancer on tuesday of this past week and it's one of those things where um Apparently he was suffering from this for nine years and I don't think he told anyone. So that is pretty wild. And uh, it's, it's, I'm a bit shaken up by it because I, I really enjoy his work. And so we're going to, in honor of him, do a movie, one of his best movies. And that of course is dirty work. And we're going to have Raylene Lightheart on for that one. Uh, we also have Raylene lined up for the Goonies the following week. So it's going to be back to back. Uh, we're doing women's equality month for the mm -hmm. month of September. Because, you know, we got to make it equal on, on all sides here. So she's going to be on back-to-back, -back, uh, number one for Dirty Work, and then the Goonies. A lightheart extravaganza. Fantastic. Yeah, and perhaps we can get her husband to join. He was on with us for Contagion uh, way, way back early on in the uh, Chinese virus <laughs> days. That's right. And yes. I, th I think we held ourselves uh, pretty well with, with very limited information at the time. I might give that, that another listen and just... See how uh, see how our discussion holds up to what we've learned since. Mm. You, pro you probably said at some point, "I can't wait till this fifteen days is over." <laughs> I, I think it was before the fifteen days was even a thing. I think we did that at the end of February. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, that was well, not in the uh, yeah, March sometime. Yeah. So you were like ground zero at that point. Yeah, yeah, it was still just being talked about in China and they were talking about yeah. like people being locked in buildings and not being able to get out and all these like cell phone signatures, like just disappearing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, nothing nefarious, nothing nefarious there. Anyway. Nothing to see there for sure. <laughs> anyway, uh, we will be uh, on for uh, dirty work next week. So um, before that, check out John's uh, John's stuff here. I'm going to get the scrolling going. Um, wine with barbecue.com. Let's see, that's the bottom one there. There it is. Yeah, winewithbarbecue.com. Find that. Yep. Scrolling along the bottom, inching along, and you can find the show notes and more for this episode at lastnighters.com slash 195. If you want some pre-show and post-show bonus content, hit us up at our Patreon and uh, send some love our way. And by love, I mean <laughs> Federal Reserve notes. Uh, for as long as they're still worth anything, uh, we will accept them uh, in trade for additional bonus content. So John, thanks again for being our guest. I hope you stick around for a little bit longer. I know it's late for you, uh, but we will, uh, we'll be back next week for the old dirty work celebrating Norm McDonald. And with that, we will say good night from last night, everyone. Peace. <laughs>